2: Hello and welcome to Nothing Concrete, the Barbican podcast. I'm Benesh Eshmade and on this Archive Edition we bring together three interviews with film director Peter Strickland, focusing on the three occasions we had the pleasure of gaining some time and insight in his company. Let's explore the concert film Biophilia, followed by the surreal storytelling of the Duke of Burgundy and finally In
3: Fabric. I think what I like doing is peeling genre away somehow, I'm not trying to elevate it it's more about unmasking it and seeing what lies behind it.
2: So we begin with Björk, an artist with an uncompromising commitment to innovation and experimentation. The concert film Biophilia is a record of her ambitious project which brought together music, nature and technology. I spoke to its co-directors, Nick Fenton, who had edited The Selfish Giant and Submarine, and Peter Strickland, who had directed before this The Barbarian Sound Studio. Peter told me this about the origins of the film.
3: Uh, um, Jackie, the producer, Jackie Edenbrow, uh, it was kind of her idea of pairing us up. It was like a blind date in a way. Um, She suggested that I should... Basically, Bjork was looking for a director to do biophilia and showed her my films. And then it was just a slow process of, of getting to know each other and talking about... Not just by biophilia, but just making sure we're, we're on the same wavelength and talking about our record collections. And if that matched, there was, you know, some hope of it working. And, yeah, so it was quite a gradual process, I think, half a year to sort of get the job.
2: Uh, obvious question, but were you a fan of her music? Uh,
0: yes. <laughs> the silent nod. Yes. Yeah. No, since the Sugar Cubes and, um, yeah, so way back, of yeah, very much kind of... Like any fan kind of mm. always awaited the next project with anticipation and and being to see her in concert a couple of i think maybe three times before, mm. so
2: yeah, 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 no very much so to take it on to the stage of, of filming it was, was was that something that was kind of daunting
3: uh, it would have been even without the the scope of of her vision, just purely doing a concert because i 'd never done one uh, before. I've only used to working with one camera and to upgrade to fifteen more uh, was tricky, but you quickly learn they're great collaborators to really help the whole process move along. so it was Jackie who took care of a lot of things there's Brett Turnbull, the the head cinematographer, who highly highly essential part of the whole process. Um, and Nick co-directing and editing and, um, so I've had worse jobs in my time. put it that way. <laughs>
0: Initially, we, I certainly did, had no idea what the gig was like because stuck backstage in a little kind of box of tricks with with monitors and terrible, terrible sound, it, it, it kind of felt like we were neighbours to a, a party that we hadn't been invited to. <laughs> It, it revealed itself very much in the in the cutting room to me because we didn't experience that intimacy of the performance originally. So, in some ways, that was a, a great relief to um, to find it, you know, very much in in the edit.
3: Yeah. The theme was biophilia. Mm. I really didn't want to put a stamp on it. You know, I, I used to love watching EastEnders, and you'd always tell when they'd get a director on who wanted to be a fucking author, you know, and just. Here's my crane shot, and here's my—I don't know. It's just no, leave it out. Just—I think it's very important that when it's your own material, fine, you can have some authorship. But obviously, people hire directors to bring something in. But there there is a a very delicate line where you are serving someone else's vision, and I'm very happy to do that when it's someone else's vision. And um, so, really, was mindful of not putting any incongruous elements. Just to say this is my stamp, yeah I really wanted to just distill the whole the whole world and I mean it's a weird balance because on on the other extreme concert films are the, the, the whole the, the, the two pejoratives are it's either a souvenir with no artistic value or it's a director trying to put their stamp on something which ends up being in Congress in in the wrong sense so I mean I, Personally, this is purely my own taste. I actually don't mind the souvenir thing. I mean, I watch concert films. I mean, my favorite one is actually doesn't even have a director. It's this one by Faust in the garage in 96. They didn't even have a director attached to that. And it's just, for just gassing the audience and Sean javier Perrin's <laughs> going naked as always. And I love it. And it's great. And it's really homemade, but it doesn't matter. Um, so for me, there's an element of wanting to just say it's okay to be a concert film. I have no issue with that. Some will like it, some won 't and that that 's fine
2: I mean, did you have any sort of don'ts anything you were trying to avoid
3: gosh i don 't know i
2: mean I think you you constantly have don'ts um but but what they
0: are now, it would be kind of foolhardy, i think to uh, admit um because the whole process is about doubts mm-hmm. until you get something that you know is is working so um I think edit editing is is a whole series of of questions and um unless you doubt it you can't be critical so i
1: think that was just
3: a Collaborative process between the two of us, and um, you'd show me stuff, and I think, "Wow, this is amazing!" And not but all, then, say, but then, say, this is shit, but.
0: <laughs> <laughs> then Peter would have doubts about whatever it was, mm. that, you know, he was seeing, and so those those doubts, though, that criticism, echoes when you're making decisions further down the line. It's not just a specific um, moment. The The idea that um, he's not, you know, the director or collaborator isn't reacting, you know, when they're not reacting to something,
2: those thoughts echo into other decisions as well and not about that specific moment. I just wanted to touch on theatric, theatricality a little bit. I mean, obviously um, Bjork, uh, you know, she's 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 done a little bit a little bit of acting, and she's she's very very you know flamboyant if that's the right word, very forthright, very powerful on stage. I mean, was 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 that a very, you know a sort of gift from your point of view? And also, obviously, you've got the choir as well, which are sort of the you know maybe even you could even compare them to sort of the, the Greek chorus.
3: Yeah, I mean, she, she makes that side very easy for us. I mean, she's incredibly performative, um, so. Uh, yeah, I think she's a great actor as well. I think she should go back to it. Not, but she should she should, she should give up music. But I think mm. she left acting after this amazing film. Yeah, no, I mean it's it's all there for us. So I mean, the, 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 the the issue was not getting it. The question was there's just too bloody much of it. There's just hours and hours of Bjork, all amazing. Hours and hours of archive which is all amazing. How to filter it down? Okay. That was the challenge, really time just hours and hours and hours to get through it
0: yeah and we could have you know you can it's a sort of project where you can carry on working carry on working you know you keep keep doing it so this was it felt actually relatively short um the amount of time we had to to bring it all together but as a as a performer i think she you know i don't think it's necessarily to do with acting it's just that she's so aware of her craft of of what she does and so she is the best person to, um, to sing her songs, you know. My romantic
3: gene is and, it
1: and is it far far
0: far. I mean, hopefully, it will make people feel humble to nature. And science, I don't think it's opposing. I don't think it's a, a versus. I think it's more of a, a a collaboration. You know, I think that's what biophilia is about. It's about everything having a connection, a, an affiliation with, with
3: one another. Uh, I think people should think about nature when they get out of their cars. That's <laughs> 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 when they should start thinking about it. Um, okay. I think mean, you can hopefully forget about it when you're watching a film. But, um, I mean, she... she was mindful of not having a didactic approach. And it was more about the marvel of nature and, and also this hope that technology, because it's always seen as, as going against nature, maybe perhaps it can collaborate with nature, which, which it does, especially in Germany and Scandinavia. Um, but hopefully more of that. And I think she spoke about the, her, this idea that every generation needs to visualize its place in the universe. Mm-hmm. And I think biofilia is, is her attempt at that.
2: Let's move from Biophilia to a film The Guardian called Filthy and Fraught with Genuine Emotion. Peter Strickland wrote and directed The Duke of Burgundy, a bold and sensual exploration of the powerful dynamic between two women whose lives are cut off from the outside world, starring Sid's Babette Knudsen as Cynthia and Chiara Diana as Evelyn.
3: Why did you write about mold crickets?
0: Why not? Such ugly things. No wonder they hide under the ground. Ugly maybe, but beautifully eloquent.
2: Strickland spoke to me about the film, and we started with the tricky question of which genre this film fits into, if any.
3: So it was just a case of taking stereotypical tropes, the very basic, basic tropes, such as the female lovers, the sadomasochism, um, and just use it as a starting point. So you know that came from you know specifically Jess Franco, but also Jean Roland um valerian Bodocik so but the film, whether by accident or not, I mean it's hard to say, but it ended up as something very different um it's It's closer to a domestic sitcom in a way, something like um Terry and June. It was not this kind of intentional thing to 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 do it that way, but I think what I like doing is peeling genre away somehow i'm not trying mm. to elevate it it's more about unmasking it and seeing what lies behind it so let's take this to its kind of it's a very unrealistic film but let's let's find some inner logic in that mm. for me what is interesting is that one of the partners is not into the whole game that's the whole crux of the drama for me if they're both into it then this it's harmony it's not interesting for me mm. so really it, it started from you know it just came from this kind of what is seen as a a low-rent genre. But then again, those films, I mean, there's some very bad examples of those films, but there's some very good examples. And even the bad films have these amazing moments of strangeness and poetry. And Because mm. I think, I'm guessing that all the producers cared about was the sex. So if they t- ticked those boxes, you know, six or seven scenes, they're happy. It seemed as if they didn't really care, the producers, I mean, or the financiers, but didn't seem to care what would be in between. And that's where you find this really lyrical, mm. strange stuff, which might be by accident, might be by, by design, I have no idea. But, but whatever it is, it's, it's quite often unlike anything else in cinema. So I, w- I would definitely encourage someone to just venture into those bookshops on the Charing Cross Road, mm-hmm. um, because that's mostly where you, where you get those films.
0: How long do I have to stay in here for?
3: For as long as I want. Are you sure you're going to be okay? Can you breathe in there? Yes! So, you know, I think mean, there's there just many, many fascinating things in terms of, you know, the whole idea of exploring power in a relationship through the, I wouldn't say um, metaphor, but this whole theatre of sadomasochism. Um, because it it is a kind of theater, it is a kind of ritual, and um it 's something very profound for evelyn hmm. zero interest for Cynthia she gets uh vicarious joy of course um but it's the give and take is the, the balance is not quite there so um and again i 'm not trying to judge evelyn i 'm not, not trying to judge cynthia but and this this could be about any Activity in in the bedroom, or it could be even beyond the bedroom, just about careers, or you know, who I want to move to to Barnsley. No, I want to move to Reading. You know that kind of stuff. You know, having people in relationships always like to believe they are they respect other someone else's choices, but two human beings, you know, they always want different things, so. So, I mean, again, I'm not, not trying to cast any kind of moral light on it. I'm just observing two characters who have have a struggle. They have very, very, very different intimate needs. Um. So the whole film is circling this idea of consent, going into compromise, going into coercion, and just sitting back and watching it, really.
2: I'm interested to discuss... Um what ideas you think people should take in when they go to view this in the cinema? I mean, what should they know or not know
3: beforehand? I don't think they need to know anything. I think you need to be of a certain age to watch it. Um, mainly because if you don't, if you haven't, I guess, if you've been, <laughs> I don't want to say this is not a film with single people. I mean, I guess it makes more sense for people if they've been in a relationship, whether you've experienced what that couple in the film have experienced. I don't think it's relevant at all. Um, I'm, I have no idea the percentage of people who practice those games. I have no idea, but my guess would be the majority of of an audience would not be familiar with that. But it doesn't matter. I mean, what I've always tried to do is, in all three films, is to take a very unfamiliar, something very unrecognisable, through channeling that, somehow you do recognise something about your life or someone else's life. and I think... That, that's a far more powerful way of seeing things in yourself than doing it in a very blunt, realistic way.
2: You never do a Mike Lee kind of situation, I suppose.
3: Well, actually, I'm working on something at the moment, which is... Because uh, I think I've done this kind of exotic cinema three times now. Yeah. I feel like I'm on the border of repeating myself. So I wanted to try something for the... F- I mean, I, 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 I don't want to go with the Mike Lee direction, but I want to do something without any kind of reference just completely shed my own skin and just work with actors in a recognizable place um i hope it's not social realism but yeah i just want to go clean i guess for (laughs) maybe one film maybe one film you know i I love films so much i'm a big film fan so i always love using it to, to work with it in my films so but i also there's always a danger of shoehorning in references for the sake of showing off i think i i I, I, I don't think i have done that but it's always it's a very fine line you know it has to kind of intrinsically work its way into what you're doing to to convey the thoughts you want to get for an audience or the anxiety of the characters but but really i mean i think that the biggest influence for me was in terms of how you work for for an audience is um greenaway just there were they were like bullet points, his films. It's just all ideas you, you walk away and discuss afterwards. There's no sort of arc as such. I'm, I'm not into arcs because, like, you know, you just look at life. People don't really change, do they? I mean, sadly, <laughs> especially politicians but, um, and bankers. But yeah, I wish bankers had an arc. That would be great. Um, so, really, yeah, I mean, the, the, the films I've done are just have ideas that are not resolved. That's the reason I, I, I write those films, because I, I don't know the answers. Uh, and I don't understand people. I don't understand women. I don't understand men. My writing is, is, an, is an attempting to see, you know, make sense of things. And hopefully the audience can do the rest, <laughs> the rest of the work somehow. And while you're there, you can take the bin out.
2: You mentioned earlier, in passing, theatre. And I was was interested to read on your biography that you come from a theatre background.
3: Well, I only did one. I did uh, Fringe Theatre a long time ago, 1992. Uh, Very good place. It's still going. Um, Progress Theatre in Reading. And that was an amateur theatre, extremely good. Kenneth Branner was there a few years before me. Um, so no, really great, great directors there. I mean, I, I learnt a lot. I, I, did, I did my own adaptation of Kafka's Metamorphosis in 1992. And I, I loved doing it. It was a great, great experience for me. Um, but I needed things to move I just like moving a camera and having different sets. So it was just very frustrating with one set. But I acted there before. I never wanted to be an actor, but I wanted to, to know what it's like to be directed. I, I couldn't get into film school. You know, I did films in Super 8, 16 mil. I acted just to know what it feels like to be on the butt end, um, which I hated. I mean, I hated acting. Um, but it was very useful to know yeah. how awful it feels especially being in front of a camera. It's just hideous. But but still, you, you get some empathy for your actors, you know, because I think you have to put a, invest a huge amount of trust in a director when you, a lens is on you, especially this film, when it's quite intimate and yeah. none of us knew it could have easily belly flopped. Well, it still might. It hasn't come out yet. <laughs> but, um, but, yeah. Mm-hmm
2: um and um again maybe talking just more generally about the process I, again i read that with your with your first film your you, you inheritance helped fund it i mean as that as the funding process become easier has making a film become easier
3: um <laughs> this one was a piece of cake it was incredible i have to say it was just weird with this one i'm so used to things being difficult yeah. uh it just didn't feel normal It just the funding was really quick on this one the whole process was very very enjoyable i'm not trying to Kiss everyone's backsides here, but um, but I, I can't complain to be honest. It's <laughs> actually really boring that I can't complain. Um, really enjoyed it. It was just the edit was wonderful. It was very laid back. Just a very very laid back shoot. And I always I kind of I kind of got it into my head that um you know the BFI were very supportive. Film for you know uh, IFC a wild side protagonist and um Andy was great the producer hmm. so um. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the, the first film was a nightmare, but um, I mean, I don't want to tempt fate. You know, I had a great time. That's all I can say. Yeah. I, 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 would, I would love it to continue like this. But uh, I think the key is to work with low budgets. The money comes quicker and people kind of tend to leave you alone because hmm. there's obviously less, less risk. Even if you can get more money, hmm. you feel, hmm, if you do, then it opens up another door, which you might not want to open. <laughs>
2: Your films, again, another another big theme is obsession. I mean, on, on many levels. I mean, one thing I wanted to talk about um, was the, the butterflies, which we haven't mentioned yet. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, where did that come from? I mean, where where does this this mm-hmm. this incredible motif that sort of
3: overwhelms you at, at points in the film? Um, it's hard to say where it came from. Really, it's something I'm I'm interested in. I had released some insect recordings before. I mean, the butterflies. I know. You, I know you're not saying this, but you know they're, they're not a metaphor. It's there's a sensuality there, there's a texture there, there's, some of a, there's something surreal about them as well. Um, and they seem to. I think the idea of them emigrated, having died, or the mole crickets is hibernating at the end in, in autumn, seemed to really connect. I wouldn't say it's a metaphor, but it really connected with um, this very autumnal love story. Cynthia's lecture at the end, when she talks about the mole crickets you know being dormant you know in this tomb basically so you know it kind of got into the idea of Evelyn in her in her tomb the you know in in the trunk and so on yeah I mean obviously you know there's the idea of you know the cyclical part of it but you know I'm, I'm it's not it's not such a thing I want to kind of ram down people's throats it was more of a, of, of a great visual texture and yeah. you know, it's their hobby it's what they do the image of the moths filling the frame just seemed to the best way to convey this complete anxiety at that stage of the film yeah. It, I always feel if like I got a metaphor, it feels like I'm, you know, I feel like I'm back at six form. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. but, 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 I mean, how
2: much time do you spend? Because I was looking at the, the closing credits on this film are particularly fascinating because you're seeing all the all the different um, butterfly mm. s- uh, field recordings that you did <laughs>
3: alongside researching the human toilet, which I, I mm. which made me giggle. Um, I mean, the three films I've done are very fake. They're not authentic at all. I'm, I'm, I try to do a, 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 a token amount of research to at least know when I'm getting it wrong, but not worry about it. I mean, for me, it's impossible for any film to be o- authentic. So I think you just got to play with that. And I mean, this film is not in any country. It's not in any time. And, you know, if I researched this film, you'd probably have, you know, rubber miniskirts and so on. And I, that's been done. I didn't want to go down that route. So, I mean, the insects, I wanted to get my facts straight um, but that 's not too difficult i mean i you know i I think it's um i 'm sure I might have got something wrong there 's a little connection which no one 's picked up on it 's the um the silver spotted skipper is the same species as, as in the box Hill documentary in barbarian it 's a continuation of that with the cows grazing and so on. I've got to be careful of cross-referencing my films, but it's...
2: Well, I did wonder you, that myself, whether or not it was a film that you would have been recorded at Barbarian Sound Studios. Could,
3: could, could yeah, well, actually, yeah. um, Maybe when it gets, yeah, some of the the more intimate scenes. So, uh, yeah, I, I don't put my head inside those characters and think, you know, what would I do in those situations? What would I do if someone asked me to lock them in a box? The first thing you'd do is say, "Are you? can you breathe? Yeah. What would I do if I was in that box? When I wanted to be in that box, I wouldn't want that other person to, to you know, care about me. i want to put them on that hard persona. So of course, Evelyn's annoyed when she says, can you breathe in there? So it's always, I think writing is about what would I do if? Yeah. But that's always a heavy one because everyone says, what would I do? And these heroic circumstances, and and these things happen in life, and you never do what you say you would do. So, I think our yeah, our ideas of what we would do and what we actually do are completely different. But um, but yeah, I mean, I mean, in terms of the credits, all those, all that information in terms of the species, you know, we had help from the insect team, we had help from the recordists who gave us all that information. So that's not me. I I just you know press copy and paste. <laughs>
2: Well, one thing that is important, though, is the music. I mean, you have some of the most amazing soundtracks, uh, this film and and the the last one in particular.
3: Uh, I I like it before I even write the film. Because when I write, I I write to music a lot. Then I become fixated with it. Then I put it on as a temp track. Because it's very important to convince financiers. When the scene is still rough, you really want the music to lift it up. But then, of course, everyone becomes a bit attached to it. That's just human nature. So um, it's hard for me, it's hard for, for all of us... It's hard for the band because they kind of they're kind of forced into doing a pastiche. It's hard just to really learn to just unglue myself, to just forget whatever I put on there and say to the band, just just be free. I mean, the important thing to for me is to dictate the instruments. That really gives the whole colour of the film. So with this one, when I was talking to Rachel and Farris, you know, about woodwind, specifically Woodwind, avoid strings, which is very kind of now, well. Last 30 years, but the 70s, a lot of woodwind, especially oboes, flutes as well. So, I mean, Rachel, she plays many instruments. Um, so and Farris with his treatments and so on, and his, his his songwriting. I mean, the thing is, we couldn't have Farris sing because it was an all female world, um, even though I'm, I'm a bloke, but <laughs> so that was, that was just Rachel on, the, on this one. Um, but I mean, I really love Cat Size, I think, um, the combination of the two of them is really unique. And I, yeah, I mean, I love the first album. So when I heard it, I just thought I've, I've got to contact them and see you know, if, if
2: they would be interested. Fantastic. i was just going to finish by saying congratulations. It's an incredible film, something that really overwhelms your senses and people should, should take, the, take the time to go and see.
3: It saves me having to say it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I told you. It's more fun to sleep with me. Maybe you can put me back in there, but just untie me.
2: Moving to Strickland's next film, *In Fabric*, the cast of which includes Gwendoline Christie, Marianne Jean Baptiste, Haley Squires, and Fatima Mohammed. This is a ghost story set against the backdrop of a busy winter sales period in a yesteryear department store.
1: And may I interest you in other desired supposes in our exclusive
0: boutique? I'm fine for now, thank you.
3: Then I would like you to announce your locus of residence. Followed by the numbers to your telephone.
2: We follow the life of a cursed red gown as it passes from person to person with devastating and gruesome consequences. How did the demonic dress come to you? Did it float from a dream?
3: Not from a dream, really. I mean, It just came from going to charity shops and buying shirts that stank of BO and <laughs> trousers with cum stains um, that weren't washed off properly. And, you know, from that, you there was the ghost of someone else and are, is that person dead Is are they still alive and it just kind of activates the imagination seeing those stains or smelling those stains and uh, so it kind of came from that really the idea of a charity shop is a bit like a museum of mm. and I guess it got me thinking about clothing and how um, there was a great power to an item of clothing how a, a dead person's shirt can if you love that person like it can reduce you to tears the shirt of someone you you desire can turn you on, how the shirt of someone you hate can disgust you. Mm. So all those, all those ideas are explored in the film. You know, Vince, he wants his face printed on Gwen's underwear. Marion, she won't even wash Gwen's underwear. She, she's so disgusted by it. Reg with, with his tight fetish. Um, Babs with her body dysmorphia. And for me, it's kind of tragic. You have um, a couple, one with a tight fetish. He can't really communicate his very deep need to his... Fiancé, she has body dysmorphia. Her fiancé doesn't really understand. So we just don't understand each other's very um, obsessive needs. Well, perhaps it's not not a need, but their um, anxieties. And so really I'm just looking at different ideas of clothing affecting people, how Marianne's character feels transformed when she wears a dress, how you put something on which makes you feel better about yourself your posture changes your facial expression changes how how you hate yourself when you put something on and so really um, I guess the haunting was just a device to explore ideas about clothing that it's not it's not just an object it's an object with immense power
1: Yeah. The pleasure is all mine,
2: Sheila Woolchapel.
1: Adonis will be waiting, and he will
3: compliment you.
2: With your films, there's aesthetically uh, an incredible sense of uh, layers. You could even, as you're saying, you know, you could smell your film t- to a certain extent because there's so much detail put into it and it sort of triggers memories in your head. I, I wondered whether when you're, you're writing or you're getting into production for the film, how you sort of go about creating this world, the world you're making for this film. <sighs>
3: It's just step by step. It's, it's, you know, it's, um, you're doing it into the last minute with the sound mix. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, the sound mix is a huge part of it. The whole muttering and the background in the shop. Uh, I think without that, it's, um, okay, you've got the acting, but the acting is, it's not enough. I'm sorry. Nothing against the actors. So it's, it's everything. Mm. It's all the elements coming together. Um yeah I mean you can do a lot in the script but again it's just a script it's not enough and with the
2: actors how much do you see the actors or because you've got a lot of character actors and you starting to think about those when you're writing or or is that just a kind of joy of sort of getting towards the final stages
3: Uh, it varies so with uh, Miss Luckmore played by Fatma Mohammed that was written for her I always work with Fatma so that's a great joy to have an actor you can always rely on and you can just write for that person. She's um, a muse
2: of sorts, isn't
3: she? Alter ego. That's why I had to go bald in this film. Um, <laughs> but I think uh, with Sheila's character, I didn't really have anyone in mind, apart from a, a middle-aged woman. Uh, the casting of her came later. Even though, even though she was, apart from Fatima, that, that, go, that goes without saying, but even she was the first person on board... Before we even had funding of, of any kind mm. uh, but you no, know, I think the majority of people had an idea of the type of person I wanted but again with Reg and Babs we found them very late in, in into the whole casting.
2: I thought this was perhaps more directly humorous in the sense, I mean obviously we, I can mention Steve Orham and Julian Barrett, I, I felt like the, the humour was more on the surface in some parts of this film compared to, to
3: your others. I'm Do not, you know? the, some people find this utterly humourless, I don't know i I've sat, I've sat Sat with an audience, he didn't laugh at a single part. So I, I don't know. It, it's all personal taste. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, when I, I wrote it, when I, I, it's not, it's not as if I tended to write something humorous. That never really happens. You, you you go into it not knowing where you're going. You just have some ideas you want to explore. But you know, very, fairly quickly on, I realised this is taking a humorous turn, and I, mm-hmm. I kind of, and then I realised that was that felt right for me because I think Sheila's life is so dreary that to not portray it in a humorous way would just be too much. Mm. So I think there's a kind of catharsis in laughter with all these incredibly frustrating bank meetings and so on. So, yeah, I guess that's how it all happened. What's the matter, Reg? You spoke so clearly and nicely when
1: you first came in. Oh, no, um, no, nothing. I'm I'm, I'm just a bit tender these days, that's all.
3: Hmm. How come?
1: It's Just a sleeping dream I had last night... been on my mind all day.
0: Hmm. Interesting.
1: Well, Babs, uh, my fiance, was in labor. I was late, so at that point the doors locked. I tried to take on her pain just to make her feel better. I kept screaming to show how much I cared, but it just seemed to annoy everyone. I kept knocking on the window in the hope that they'd let me in. The baby came out of Babs in this dress that looked exactly the same as the one I wore on my stag night at Zinzan's. I wanted to wave at my little girl, but she wasn't having it.
2: She made it clear that I should sling my hook. Um, let's go back to the character Sheila, played by Marianne Jean-Baptiste. She is incredible because she, I think for a better phrase, roots the film. Her performance is so mundane or so everyday that all the the stuff that's happening around her just is elevated.
3: Yeah, that was very important to have anchored. Absolutely. Um, well, we spoke a lot about it as a kind of like a dial that you're going from one to nine. Uh, heading towards zero is like social realism and nine is towards the fantastical, the surreal mm. and nothing was on zero. Nothing was on 10, but you know, the house of everything was like one or two. The store was on number eight. The bank was on number five. So with Marianne, we spoke about her performance wouldn't change, but she'd know she's going into a space where the modulation is going up or going down. And, She's just reacting to that. But no, the idea with Marin was to have a consistency to her um, and not to show too much surprise, you know, but there's no element of what the hell am I walking into in the store? Because mm. I, I think, you know, the, the thing with those stores is there was, it was like an, it was, it was, it was a given that they were strange. It was a given that they were out of time. So it's not as if what the hell am I doing here? It was just, yeah, you go into those places. They were like, they were like a theater. There was a performance when people were selling you stuff. And, mm. Fatma 's dialogue is very flamboyant it 's just a slight exaggeration of yeah. of you know when you I remember going to a job center and seeing uh, uh, was it now twilight replenishment operative for uh, uh, on a night shift the you know shelf stacking job so you know with the English are we are what 's the word We're <laughs> euphemisms basically you know which, which, which you realize more living abroad that you know uh, so it, I think so many things hit me when I live outside the country that oh my god, this is quite unique. Like stag groups. It's not mm. something that so common in Hungary at all. Um it's a very British thing. But mm. again, I think growing up in England you just assumed the whole the West the whole world was, was like <laughs> thank God it isn't anyway.
2: Maybe I saw something that wasn't there, but the two reference points that came into my head were, were 70s Doctor Who uh, and uh, Carry On Screaming, I thought, maybe because of the obsession with the, the modelling dolls, the, the um, things. Do you think that's... A... Oh,
3: right. Yeah, no, I, someone actually showed me that, but that was after I wrote the script. Okay. That's the one, yeah, with the mannequins on, yeah, on, the, on the front yeah. window, and they come alive. Yeah, no, I mean, I'll tell you what, it did come from. Um, there was a sculptor called Keenholtz, he was working with mannequins, but he made them look incredibly scary with resin dripping down their faces. And I always found them a bit scary as a kid. And I was just trying to be true to my childhood and mm. look back on department stores and how, you know, when you're waiting for...
2: When you're a child as well. They're scary places, I remember them.
3: Before. Yeah, and they're very heightened. They're just things you don't understand. So you make up stuff, you know, the dumb waiter. Is someone actually going to sleep down there? <laughs> you know, There's a sweatshop down there. um the mannequins, are they guarding the store? And we're also having that wonderful poetry of people shopping. And um, there was they didn't have loud music then as well. They had big, th- thick carpets. The sound was slightly muffled. Um, so it's really just trying to be true to that. And just, you know, for me, I never wanted to make something that was whacked or just wacky for the sake of being wacky. Everything had to be linked to real life in some way
2: in this film i thought it was a weird mix of sort of um cna and are you being served
3: well the the big influence for me was jackson's it was it's a department store was a department store in reading it was a very unique place it was not a chain um had to close in 2013 but i remember specifically the pneumatic money system where you the put tubes. the tubes and the long wait for your change to come back and that awkwardness <laughs> and standing and you'd hear all this muttering and whispering in the background and it was very heightened and dramatic. I mean, Jackson's was a huge influence on this film and I would have loved to have shot there, but mm. it was not to be. It closed and we we missed the boat. An episode of Endeavour was shot in Jackson's. Okay. I'm extremely jealous of that. I um,
0: <laughs> think we need a new one.
1: Hopefully not, let's see. Yeah.
0: What was wrong with it?
1: Basket drive went bananas.
0: Basket drive?
1: Yeah, the basket drive just went bananas. And the spin tube bearings are knackered. I tried to check the clutch surface for any damage and found that the rivets were rubbing up against the clutch pulley. There's also the possibility that the drain hose is kinked. But I can put that into writing for you after a more thorough inspection. The clutch plate is no longer a plate. And the switch striker is neither switching nor striking if i can get to the wigwag solenoid there's a chance i can find out why the washer didn't drain the block pump isn't helping matters and the agitator
2: leaves me at a loss
1: i can also see that the wigwag terminals are not where they're supposed to be which leads uh, to-
2: one of the other things which is um really brilliant in the film is uh, the uh, washing m- machine repair character and um again strong memories of obviously us depending upon those people felt like it was a lifeline in in the sense and then the lingo they used was so incredible that um, in this film you turn it into something that even manages to turn some characters on
3: yeah well that that goes into this whole autonomous sensory meridian response where there's a very tactile visceral or sensual response to certain sounds i wouldn't call it erotic it's just you go into a very Trance, and it's a world in which everyone is um, susceptible to to this. So I think whenever Reg goes to a house to fix a washing machine, people will go into a trance. Mm-hmm. But it was all part of the thing of having having a parallel between sonic texture and physical texture. The human voice, the, the muttering in the store of right. all the all the shoppers. We called it the ladies' boutique chorus. The the whispering of the staff during Babs's dream. Um, it's all connected, really. So I, I, again, I think you know the washing machine obviously we have a very specific scene in which the washing machine is destroyed, or two washing machines are destroyed by the dress, so narratively that kind of connected, but also yeah, the idea of, of again clothing and the bodily imprint being washed out and purged out and but yeah, I, I just um, I love what we call asmr this kind of this kind of trance that people go into when they hear certain things and I put out a single by the Bowman Brothers in 2002. It was a seven-inch single I put out, and they were reading DIY catalogues. And that was it. Um, I I just loved it. It actually did quite well. I mean, we sold a couple of hundred, which is pretty good for for my label, actually. Um,
2: Is each new film a, a learning curve? Is it about getting better at sort of transferring what's in your head to the screen?
3: It feels like I'm going backwards sometimes. Um... I find this one really difficult. I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to deny that. There were so many things I hadn't done before. Mm. You know, the dog attack, the washing machine, the fire. Uh, I really, the, the whole, the whole fight at, at the end. I really felt I was in at the deep end, and I felt I was out of my depth. If I'm really honest, um, without being falsely modest, I'm amazed we got it done. <laughs> so yeah, it was it was a huge step up from I'd say step up in terms of just the logistics, not in terms of quality. From a film which had just two people lounging around in a house, you know, pissing on each other. Um, that was very easy to do. Yeah, it was not easy. I mean, I can't say I had much fun shooting it. No, I'm not going to lie.
2: But the reaction has been amazing or so far. I mean, uh, God.
3: Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I was very, very, very relieved to be honest, because um, it was, yeah, it was a tough. It was not. An, I'm not. I like, how do I say? It? it was not a fun film to make. I'm not going to deny that. Thanks to Peter for
2: speaking to me on those various encounters. Such a unique, knowledgeable, scary, funny, but music-obsessed director. I'm Ben Maid. Thanks for listening to this Archive edition of Nothing Concrete, the Barbican podcast. Here to inspire more people to discover and love the arts with weekly episodes of Archive Finds and themed series. Subscribe to Nothing Concrete on ACAST, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. And if you can, leave us a review to help us get the word out.